Tonight I'd like to speak about a teaching of the Buddha with what I feel is a wonderful name, one of my favorite Pali words, bojanga. Somehow I just find that's lovely to say. So a bojanga is a factor of awakening, <clears throat> and there are seven of them. And these seven factors, when fully developed, when strengthened, are the conditions or prerequisites for enlightenment, for awakening. And these seven factors are also familiar and in a way quite ordinary states of mind and heart that we're all familiar with. In any moment when we're fully present, undistracted, connected with what's happening, it's likely that these factors are engaged to a more or less degree. But as we do our practice, these factors are growing stronger and more stable. And as they strengthen, they have the power to profoundly affect our relationship to the world. And they are mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. I remember <clears throat> when I first heard the teachings on the five hindrances, the energies of craving and aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, how incredibly freeing it was to realize, to understand that my struggles weren't so personal, that these forces come and go for everyone, and that they could be seen and understood and worked with skillfully. Similarly, with these seven factors of awakening, these positive aspects, these wholesome states of mind and heart, <clears throat> they also come and go in all of our experience. They're not reserved only for the masters. They're no more personal, no more me, than the hindrances. And they also can be seen and understood and worked with, developed, cultivated. I think we humans have an incredible capacity to, maybe it's just in this culture, an incredible capacity to focus on and even identify with what's difficult in our experience, to notice the struggles, where we're pulled off. <clears throat> and it's 
much easier in a way to overlook the wholesome or beautiful states that we also have access to in our lives. So in light of that, it can be useful to reflect on these qualities, to learn to recognize them when they're present, and to begin to notice when they're absent, and when we might, simply by recognizing that they're not there, introduce them, reintroduce them back into our experience. A few years ago, I heard this, what I thought was amazing story on NPR that I listened to a lot about the development of a robot as a receptionist in an office. And they were talking about how when they first were working on a robot receptionist, people weren't really connecting with it. So they realized they had to do something to give it human qualities, uh, qualities that people would relate to and connect with. And I think it's so interesting that the qualities they chose to program in to the human, not the human, the robot receptionist were, to me, some of our worst. (laughs) What they did was uh, worked with people in the drama department of this particular school where this development was happening. And they, they talked about how people like to watch soap operas. Like we get hooked in to all that suffering, I guess. <laughs> uh, neuroses. Maybe it's comforting to see other people worse off than ourselves. I don't know. <laughs> but just to read you a couple of lines about this robot that they developed. <clears throat> First of all, they said it was all part of an experiment in how to make robots less boring. So the robot's name is Tank. And they say Tank is kind of a a, a pathetic character. He worked at NASA and failed as a satellite robot. And he seems kind of bitter about it all, (laughs) Um, saying, Everyone knows all those government agencies all have quotas to fill. I was the token robot on staff. He complains in his synthesized voice. Emotionally, Tank is a loser. So one of the things that they noticed was to see if people would somehow like feel sorry for him. And in fact, people did, and they tried to cheer him up. And <laughs> And so... As an example, the person who was doing this little experiment types into the robot, I love you. And the (laughs) tank's response was, um, he replied evenly, you do not even know me. (laughs) Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting example that, like, of all things that they could have programmed in, they kind of programmed in our neurotic tendencies. So... Here, in our meditation practice, we might occasionally reintroduce or program in these factors of awakening. Why not? As these seven factors are presented, these seven qualities of heart and mind, they are presented in a certain order, and in a way they do build on each other. But they're also extremely interconnected. 
and in a way not separate from each other. So they can be thought of as a way to understand the path of practice. Now, sometimes when we think of a path, we think of it in a very linear way. And as though we're going somewhere within the framework of time. But truly, on a spiritual path, there's nowhere to go and nobody going. So that linear uh, progression isn't necessarily so helpful. It's not really about getting something other that we don't have. In a way, it's about realizing the best of our true nature and developing that. The Buddha grouped the factors of awakening in terms of three energizing or active qualities, investigation, effort, and rapture, and three stabilizing or receptive qualities, concentration, tranquility, equanimity. Mindfulness stands on its own. It has a very important function in the development of these other qualities, and it also serves to bring them into balance. There are a lot of lists in the Buddha's teachings. No doubt you're familiar with many of them. But if we remember one thing, and one thing only, mindfulness is a good thing to remember. The rest actually can follow from being mindful. So just to touch on a few points, mindfulness is that observing power of mind. It means seeing very clearly, very directly, just how things are. So as we pay attention to our breath, our bodies, as we sit, as we walk, as we move through the day, we're developing mindfulness. So it's being present with what is in a very direct way without adding to it, without adding commentary, judgment, without battling with what is. Simply knowing in the way that we would know a sound arising and passing. So mindfulness is an observing power, but it's not a removed or intellectual observation. It's much more of an embodied knowing. We know our moment-to-moment experience directly in a deeply penetrating way. This ability to see into things deeply I think is also essential in a life that's connected, compassionate, wise. We have to be willing to look beyond the superficial level of things to really come to know how our actions might be the most skillful, the most beneficial in this world. So we look deeply with that penetrating quality 
An important function of mindfulness is to remember. We remember to come back to the present moment. We're training in this every time we notice that we're gone, that we've disconnected from the present moment, and we bring our attention back. As mindfulness becomes more stable, we're able to include subtler aspects of our experience. So, for example, the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We're also able to begin to be mindful of the contents of the mind, moods, emotions, thoughts, and all of the various movements within that, the changes. With practice, we actually can be mindful of all of this. Over time, what we notice as we practice is that there are more and more moments of mindfulness in a row. It's a common misunderstanding to think that we must achieve some steady state of mindfulness when actually it's only ever just one moment at a time. But with practice, there can be more and more of those moments strung together. This function of mindfulness to remember is in a way the very opposite of denial. And this is so important in our world. As we cultivate mindfulness, the ability to stay present with the truth grows. And we we can bring that into more and more areas of our lives, into what's potentially really challenging. Certainly, relationship with others, whether we're in an intimate relationship or the relationship of peers, of co-workers, this can be a great area to practice a mindful presence. Can we be there fully? Can we be there fully with another? To hear or witness their experience completely, letting go of commentary, of judgment. So in any moment when we're fully present, when we're mindful, these other factors of awakening are also developing and coming into balance because it takes energy or effort at times to be present to pay attention. And we start to relate to our experience with interest. Sometimes this is easy. Sometimes this takes a great effort. When we're able to accept what's true and stop battling with our experience, the factor of calm is cultivated. We return again and again to the present moment, and concentration grows. And as we see more deeply into our experience and learn how to let go of the struggles with it, we also see that it's not so personal. We find a balance of heart and mind, 
so equanimity grows. Mindfulness has incredible power to transform our experience. I have a really short poem written by a prisoner that I think illustrates this uh, quite nicely. It's called Open and Closing Cell Door. Cell door makes magic melody when I'm waiting to exit. Cell door clangs discordant cacophony when I'm trying to sleep. But when I am just being, so is the cell door. So how do we develop this cornerstone of our practice? It's said in the teachings that the cause of mindfulness is mindfulness itself. So at the beginning of our practice, maybe our mindfulness isn't so strong. It's kind of weak. But each moment of mindfulness conditions the next. And over time, it strengthens even to being one of the factors of awakening. The first of the active or energizing factors of awakening is investigation. And its function is to dispel the darkness of not knowing, not understanding. It's as if we go into a dark room and shine a flashlight and suddenly we're able to see what we couldn't see before, what's been there all along. The factor of investigation is our flashlight. When we shine it on our experience, confusion dissipates. We see clearly. If doubt is arising in our practice, this quality of investigation can help bring clarity. We can't force investigation, but we can direct our minds into experience. Sometimes investigation can take the form of wise reflection or inquiry, where we might ask ourselves, where am I caught? Where am I stuck in my life? Or why am I suffering? Not trying to figure out intellectually the answer, but to direct our attention more closely into our experience. Sometimes I find it useful to simply ask in practice, what's happening? What's happening right now? Or what is this? Just that reminder to look to investigate. With investigation, it's important to remember to have the quality of being a beginner, the willingness to not know. So we put aside, in a way, all of the things we've read, that we've understood intellectually, and we just look in a fresh way to see what we can see. It's important to have that 
openness, that willingness to look, to see. Sometimes what we might see with this factor is that we'll pay attention to something, we'll investigate it, especially if it's unpleasant. But there's this subtle uh, sub-agenda that we're doing this in order to make it go away. So we might ask, why am I suffering here? But it's more of a, what do I need to do to get rid of it? And it can be really subtle. It's important to see that. Pure investigation says, I'll pay attention to you, whatever it is we're paying attention to, no matter how long you stay, no matter how long you're there. And that takes practice to develop that kind of pure, unconditional investigation. We go out, in and out, of that kind of willingness in our practice, and that's okay. It's natural. We can learn to recognize the times when we have the energy to do that, that kind of pure looking. But it's also important to remember that we can only do what we can. I love um, Pema Chodron's line of start where you are. So we need to see if there's resistance or fear then that's what we bring our attention to. If there is a subtle agenda or maybe a really uh, predominant, strong agenda that we want to look in order to get rid of, then we see that, that craving, that aversion. So how to cultivate the factor of investigation? It starts with being mindful. When mindfulness is present and we begin to see more clearly, it naturally leads to more of an interest in seeing clearly. Interest is really key in investigation. It's a key component of practice. Can we be interested in the whole of our experience? It's easy sometimes to be interested in the parts that we like, or maybe the parts that are particularly hard. But can we work on strengthening and deepening this quality of investigation with a very continuous uh, effort to just continually be interested? What's happening now and now and now? This is a quote from Albert Einstein, who I think must have had a great capacity for being interested in things. He said, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as if everything is. What if we were interested in that way? as though everything were a miracle, which in some sense you could think that it is. So what is it to breathe? What is this pattern of mind 
that we call self-judgment. Often when we're suffering, it can be uh, a good sort of wake-up call to get interested, to pay attention. And as we look in any moment and we see clearly, there's a possibility of a liberating understanding. And I don't mean necessarily complete liberation, but small liberation along the way. These kinds of insights, these kinds of understandings that come from investigation fuel our desire to continue to practice and to bring investigation into more and more of our lives. And to do that, it takes energy. It takes effort which is the next of the factors of awakening. I think I mentioned the other night that on one of my retreats, I wrote down courageous effort as a source of inspiration for me in my practice. And sometimes the energy that's required is that in practice. Sometimes it can be much quieter than that, much softer, but sometimes it really takes a kind of ardency. And I like that word, ardency, because it helps me think of courage not necessarily in terms of sort of showing up in warrior mode to meet my experience, but showing up with the fullness of heart that kind of willingness, a sense of, in a way, leading with the heart into this amazing work of investigation that we're doing. One of my teachers described this quality of courageous effort as love of the truth. Once we get a taste for aligning ourselves with the truth, We're motivated, we're inspired to continue to practice. So we carry on, we keep cultivating the seeds of wisdom and compassion and the quality of effort supports us along the way. An example of how energy supports the mind in the face of painful or difficult experience is of an old broken down house which is just about ready to collapse. If the slightest wind came along, the house would come down. But if we prop up the house with some fresh, new, strong beams, then it can withstand even a pretty substantial storm. And it said that energy is like that, that it supports the mind when we might otherwise feel a bit battered or worn down, worn out. So when energy or effort is strong and present, we can meet our experience. We don't shrink back or shy away from the truth We're able to be with what's happening, whether it's pleasant 
unpleasant or neutral. And, of course, there are times in practice when it's more effortless, when it just seems all we need to do is sit down and we're there, we're really present. And other times when we really need to make more effort. And it's, for most of us, preferable to have those effortless times. A friend of mine told me that she rides her bike only for the downhills. (laughs) But it's also possible to maybe be one of those people who feels something's wrong unless we're really sweating, unless we're really working hard. It's possible to get attached to striving also. So finding the right effort is something that we do in our practice continually, I think. Noticing when we're too tight, when we're straining, and relaxing, settling back, opening up. Recognizing when we're spaced out, too relaxed, and refocusing, reconnecting. Looking more closely into our experience. I have a friend who used to do a fair amount of juggling and different balancing tricks. And he used to balance things on a finger or occasionally on his chin. Big things like a table by one leg on the chin. Or one time he attempted to balance my kayak, which is fairly large, on his chin. And so if you can imagine trying to balance a kayak on your chin, he said that when he first started to experiment with doing these stunts, he'd run all over trying to get underneath the thing that he was balancing. When it's balanced, there's a kind of ease, a kind of stillness. But effort's needed to find that place, to get under it. So coming into balance in our practice is like that sometimes. Sometimes we spend a fair amount of time sort of running around, trying to get into that place of balance. It's a dynamic process. It's not like mindfulness. It's not something fixed that we achieve. So we don't need to judge the times that we get out of balance because that's how we learn. That's how we discover for ourselves what it means to come into balance. On the most basic level, right energy or right effort is the willingness to come back to the present moment. I've heard it said that there are only two instructions necessary for practice. Begin and go on. Energy or effort is essential for both of those. To begin and to go on. Which in a way is just beginning again and again and again. (laughs) 
as we meet our moment-to-moment experience quite fully with that sense of energetic presence, the third of the arousing qualities can arise. It's called rapture in the texts, which is not a word that we use so much day to day. Quite simply, it's happiness, satisfaction, or in another way, it can be thought of as a kind of joyful interest that comes when we're really present, when we're very connected with what's happening. It's a happiness that's not dependent on the content of what's happening. We're present, again, for that love of being awake, the love of the truth. Rather than being bound by attachment or aversion to certain states that we like or don't like. This is a different kind of happiness than the kind that come from sensual experience, which are dependent on conditions. These arise due to pleasant experiences that we have, pleasant sights, sounds, tastes, sensations, pleasant thoughts. You might experience this kind of joyful interest in nature or in music, art. I know I use my relationship with nature and have for as long as I can remember since I was a kid as a way to bring in some energy, bring in some of that lightness of being, a kind of nourishment. And this can be quite skillful. But there are also meditative joys that are not dependent on the senses. And this is when the mind and the heart are oriented toward inner pleasures. The pleasures of meditative states. The joy when the mind settles into the stillness of concentration. Maybe the pleasure in hearing the Dharma in experiencing loving-kindness or compassion. This kind of joy is a very important aspect of our practice. It's uplifting. Again, it can buoy us, sort of carry us through difficulty. There's a lightness of heart, a sense of ease and interest in continuing to practice. Sometimes with concentration, rapturous feelings, sensations can become very strong and be felt in the body in many different ways, ranging from the sensation of goosebumps, chills, to strong surges or waves of joy. Sometimes it might feel as if the body is floating or completely filled with lightness and happiness it's important to remember that joy is a part of the path. Sometimes there's dukkha, sometimes there's sukha, there's joy. And of course, for some of us, 
it's easy to get attached to joyful states. I certainly know this was a very strong area for me in my practice, and it's not like I'm completely free of it. But I know in the early years of my practice, I spent a lot of time attached to joyful states that would arise in practice, born out of concentration. And I would measure myself and my practice against whether or not these states were arising. If we're not mindful when the quality of delight, of happiness, comes up in practice, it's easy to either get lost in it or slip into a kind of over-exuberance where we let ourselves be carried away by that bubbling, joyful energy. And if we're holding on to it, if we're not mindful and we're attached, we will suffer because it doesn't last forever. It comes and it goes. So this is where mindfulness really brings things back into balance. Mindfulness is like being tossed the life raft in that situation. The last three factors of awakening are the stabilizing factors. Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And sometimes it can be easy to overlook or perhaps undervalue these quieter, more receptive qualities. And, of course, as with anything, we might also become attached to these. There might be, for us, a strong inclination to just hang out in peace and calm and really let go of investigation and the wisdom that can come from that investigation because it's comfortable. So again, mindfulness is the key to recognizing if that's going on and to bringing uh, these stabilizing factors in balance, into balance with the energizing factors. Tranquility or calm, the first of the stabilizing factors, often follows joyful interest. Sometimes the strongest rapture in practice or sense of delight can be followed by a deep calm. Calm, it's said, is nourished by happiness. The energy and commitment to practice that comes with joy helps to deepen our connection to the present moment, and so we settle more fully into whatever's happening. The example given of this quality of calm is stepping into a cool shade on a hot day. The heat of an agitated mind is extinguished. A cool calmness arises in the absence of restlessness and remorse in the mind, 
that kind of agitation. How often in our lives do we live from that place of restlessness or agitation without recognizing it? I remember a few years ago, a dear friend of mine in a telephone conversation one evening said, I want to stop living my life as though it were an emergency. And I really understood what she meant. I thought it was such a great way to put it. It may be for some of us that we need to learn to trust stillness. And this is what this quality of calm offers, a deeply healing silence and stillness in both the body and the mind. And we know even experiencing just a moment of that deep, cool calmness in the body, in the mind, is very powerful. Tranquility comes as we learn to be steady within the changing flow of experience. You might think of the inner flow of experience in terms of a sort of uh, inner weather systems. It can help sometimes to frame it in that way as uh, it can help depersonalize it. Do we really judge the changing of the weather? We might not like it. You know, we might have preferences for spring to be here by now, for example. Or for more snow, if we love snow. But we accept that that's what the weather does. It changes. We can't control it. So sometimes just thinking of this inner world and these various patterns and uh, fluctuations that happen in our minds and hearts as our internal weather systems can be useful. Because really, in the same way that we can't control the external weather, we really can't control the internal weather either. But we can learn to show up, to see it clearly, to check it out, to understand it. And as we do that, as we even perhaps find a certain kind of joy with aligning ourselves with the truth of our internal weather system, we learn to, we settle into a greater sense of ease and calm. We learn to let go of the ways that we might usually struggle with that weather. There's a lovely haiku that I heard many years ago that often comes to me when I'm practicing. It's more appropriate to the fall, but it goes like this. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down 
just like that. Just that clear, present, accepting awareness that this is what's happening. The leaves fall. Just like anything else, we can't force calm. We can't make it happen. It comes on, our, on its own as we align ourselves with what is, as we face each moment with a sense of openness and acceptance rather than judgment or resistance. And when it does come, it brings with it that deep nourishment. And it touches even those we come into contact with in our lives. Yeats said, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even fiercer life because of our quiet. And out of the deepening quiet comes the next factor, concentration. This is the mind that lands on the object of meditation and sinks into it. Our attention, it's as though our attention is inside of our experience. So the mind sticks with the breath, for example, sinks into it and remains there when concentration is really present, undistracted. We become immersed in the present moment. As concentration develops, the mind collects itself and becomes more integrated, more of a whole rather than scattered or diffuse. And we experience this integration of mind as peace, stillness, a place we can rest. The mind is quite protected when concentration is strong. It's protected from unwholesome states. Concentration also gives an incredible power to our mindfulness, to that penetrating quality of mindfulness. So it's like the difference between shining a flashlight with old batteries at something or shining a laser beam, where with the flashlight we might only see the very outline or silhouette of something. When the mind is really concentrated, it's like the laser beam where it penetrates into what we're looking at. There are two types of concentration. One is called fixed and one moving or momentary. In fixed concentration, we focus on a single object to the exclusion of everything else, such as the breath at times. Or in metta practice, the feeling of loving kindness, And the concentration is continuous. 
the mind gets very steady, very one-pointed, very still, and, as I said, very protected. The hindrances don't arise. It's not that they're completely gone, but they're suppressed by the strength of that concentrated mind. Moving or momentary concentration is what more often we cultivate in Vipassana practice. This is a concentration that arises in each moment. We focus on whatever is actually present. So we may start by using the breath as an anchor and gain some steadiness of mind. But then we open up our practice to include everything, whatever's arising. We learn to be steady and see that moment-to-moment changing flow of experience, sensations, thoughts, emotions, etc. And in doing that, we have the opportunity to see into the true nature of each of those things. The goal of momentary concentration is the development of wisdom. There was a time once, some years ago, when I was practicing next door, when concentration was quite strong, but I was a little short on mindfulness. And this became clear to me one moment when I was doing walking practice in the driveway. And I was just really focused on the sensations of walking, and it was as though the rest of the world disappeared. So I was just slowly walking, really with the sensations, and then at a certain point, there was very strong vibration, sound. And I stopped because it was so strong and so interesting. There was all these different um, aspects to it and tones and vibrations. And I was just very there, very interested in it. And then I happened to look up and there was a huge truck waiting for me to get out of the way so they could come in and make a delivery. But I was a little short on mindfulness in those first moments. I was concentrated. But, you know, it needs to be balanced. One of the things that we see as we practice over time, and we see this in our lives perhaps as well, is the cyclical nature of our unfolding. So often a deep, a period of deep concentration and calm can be followed by a period of agitation or difficulty. I find it really helpful to remember that practice is a process of purification. If we expect to have a kind of smooth ascent to liberation, we're in for some disappointment. I mean, so far in my experience, I can say that that's true. Maybe you'll be lucky. 
In fact, sometimes as we practice, it's almost as though the tangles, the struggles, the knots become more apparent than they were before. But it's just that we're seeing them more clearly. We're more aware of the suffering inherent in attachment, aversion, and confusion. I can also say from my own experience that often those times of struggle end up being the most fruitful. And as we experience that individually in each of our own practices, we learn to trust that cyclical nature of things. That place of trust, of balance, the state of mind which is at the center, inclining neither to one extreme nor the other, is the last factor of awakening, equanimity. Equanimity is a state of non-reactivity or an evenness of heart and mind. When equanimity is present, the mind is spacious and calm. We don't get over-enthusiastic or elated when things are going well, nor do we get discouraged, depressed when things are difficult. There's a kind of inner balance where we can treat all of these different weather systems equally. We're simply present for them. A nice analogy for this is it's like the sun shining equally on everything. So as we learn to accept the changes that we see in our practice, in our experience, we find more and more ease and balance. It can happen if you're not so accustomed to ease and balance that you might find yourself thinking, nothing's happening here. I know there have been times when I've gone into interviews and reported just that, nothing's happening. When actually, there was some equanimity present. At first, when I began to experience this, I felt kind of off guard, like I was looking around, you know, for something. And then I learned to rest in that place of balance. Usually, in my experience anyway, it doesn't last too long So you might as well enjoy it when it's there. In daily life, equanimity is constantly challenged. I could give countless examples (laughs) in my life currently as a step-parent to an angry teen. Things are going along, I'm feeling equanimity, and then there's a big something, suddenly. But equanimity 
is the ability to be with that storm without getting completely derailed. Feeling it, knowing it, it comes through, it passes. The Buddha named four particular joys and their opposites as conditions that we should expect to encounter over and over again in our lives. He called them the eight vicissitudes, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. We're so habituated to seek only the positive side of each of those pairs and to think that something's wrong when the other half of the equation is what's happening. But it's like wanting only the day and not the night or only summer and not winter. Given that our lives are made up of quite a mix of pleasant and painful feelings, developing and strengthening this quality of equanimity is very useful. We learn to meet the changing conditions of our lives with a sense of balance. But again, remember, start where you are. And it might not be equanimity. So if you see that you're reacting to something and then you judge that and feel angry with yourself, start with that. Start with the judging mind. Start with recognizing the aversion. Can we come to a place of equanimity with that? Can we make room for all of it? I find that one way to break the chain of reactivity is to extend forgiveness to myself for the tangles that inevitably arise. Rather than judging, this is something we can develop. If our habit is to judge our difficulties, what about replacing that habit with a habit of forgiveness? So what we're learning is how to open to the full range of experience with a kind of tenderness, perhaps compassion for ourselves. And I think, in a way, every moment of pure mindfulness is a moment of equanimity. We're cultivating equanimity. It's strengthening when we sit with a pain in the knee or when we're aware and present for the experience of joy. Knowing pleasure, knowing pain, seeing the impermanent nature of all of it, we come to this place very naturally of balance. It deepens. 
So as you practice, you might notice these seven factors of awakening when they're there, when they're not there. But if you can't remember them, if you remember nothing else, just remember to be mindful and the rest will follow. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.